Hello everyone and welcome. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. The podcast of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. The Hannah Arendt Center provides an intellectual space for passionate, uncensored, nonpartisan thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. My name is Jana Mader, and I'm the Director of Academic Programs at the Hannah Arendt Center. It is my pleasure to introduce Roger Berkowitz, Founder and Academic Director of the Hannah Arendt Center. Roger Berkowitz is a Professor of Politics, Philosophy and Human Rights at Bard College. He's the winner of the 2019 Hannah Arendt Prize for Political Thought given by the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Stay on for more info at the end of today's episode. Our current book is The Origins of Totalitarianism, published in 1951. Make sure to subscribe to not miss an episode. Hi, Roger. It's great to see you. Hey, Jana. It's great to see you. It's good to be here in January where it's nice and gray. I know. A gloomy afternoon. Perfect for reading. Yes. We are back this week with chapter 11 titled The Totalitarian Movement. In this chapter reading, you will be talking about techniques of totalitarian movements before they have power. Arendt divides this chapter in two parts, part one on propaganda and part two is on totalitarian organization. You will analyze how the core of propaganda is organization, how it is aimed at the masses, what it promises the masses, and you will identify four forms of totalitarian organizations. From all the 11 chapters we have read so far, I think this one makes it especially hard not to think of contemporary politics. So I wanted to ask you before we dive into the chapter reading, would you highlight a few um, connections for us? Um, it may not be exactly what Hannah Arendt is describing, but um, I'm thinking of fake news and propaganda and certain elements of organization. Yeah, no, it's a it's an important question and and I think you're you're right. I want to I want to do something I want to offer a caveat, right? Which is that RN wrote this book in 1950 and it's really about totalitarianism in the 20th century. But she's also interested in the way that totalitarianism doesn't come out of nowhere. It's a new form of government and she thinks it's a new form of government that is particularly well adapted to modern society. And we'll talk a lot about that, especially when we read the epilogue, but there's elements of totalitarianism that she thinks continue to exist. Things like loneliness, things like the, the problems of the nation state, the paradoxes of the nation state, which we talked about in chapter nine, things like imperialism or globalization and the loss of, of, of local borders. All of these things and, and more are, are these elements that continue to exist and mean that totalitarianism, while it may never come back in exactly the same form as it did in, in Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia, is something we should not think can't come back in a different form. And, and so there's, there's not going to be any direct analogs, but there's certainly going to be poetic resonances. Let's put it that way. What's interesting about this chapter, as you said, is it's really... It's the chapter about how does 
a proto-totalitarian movement before it takes power and thus becomes really totalitarian come to take power. And it's important because at the essence of totalitarianism for her is terror. And we'll talk about that in, 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 in the next week's chapter on chapter 12. But before totalitarianism takes power, it can't use terror very much because if it did, it would, it would lose adherence because people aren't yet fully convinced, fully indoctrinated. So it can't take on its essence of using terror and it has to convince people and it has to convince people like any other party. It has to say, there's a reason you should support our party, our movement. And it's because of X. How does totalitarian do that? And she has two answers, as you said. Uh, one is propaganda. Propaganda is, you know, a way of, of of appealing to the people and saying you should support our movement because it will do something for you. It can appeal to interests. But for the most part, totalitarian movements, she thinks, don't appeal to your self-interest. They don't appeal to your class interest. We talked about in chapter 10 on masses and classes how the sort of breakdown of classes bring about this new group, these things she calls masses of people who don't have similar interests. And I think if you look at, just to take one example or two examples, we'll take the Trump movement today and the woke movement today. They're both movements that have wildly divergent kinds of people in them. So on the woke movement side, you have, you know, poor students, you have a lot of intellectuals, you have, you know, some people uh, in, in, in high levels of, of, of democratic politics, you have some rich people, you have poor people, you have people from all over the country, you have people of different races. It, it's not clear that there's a common interest in all these things, and yet there's a sense that they're part of a movement. Similarly, in the MAGA movement, you have hedge fund people and you have working class union people, and you have people who are white and you have people who are Latino and you have increasingly number of, especially male black men. And, and it's wild, different classes and, and, and things like that. So these are what she calls masses, mass movements, not, not class movements, not interest-based. And, and propaganda appeals to them by saying, these are people who don't feel like they have much purpose in the world. Their world has been upended in some way. And they need to feel meaningful. And propaganda is to offer them meaning. And one way it does that is through ideology. You know, whether it's a, an ideology of race or of class or of power or, or something else, give them something to believe in. And that's what it appeals to. And that's where organization comes in. Because what she says is that the core aim of propaganda is to create a fictional world where people feel that their lives are purposeful and meaningful. That means they have to be protected from a world that's real where, you know, there are people who disagree with them and what they believe is often not what wins and 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 they feel like they actually don't have much power in the world. There's a sense of disempowerment that drives mass movements and drives the masses. And propaganda has to provide a sense of a closed, secure, coherent world. And the best way to do that, she says, is not actually through the content of any ideology, but through organization, by creating, by mimicking the feeling of a mass, you know, town meeting where people scream and yell and, you know, lose their individuality and become part of a crowd. And so whether it's through social media or through 
movements or through small, you know, cells or whatever it is, you try and actually create, you organize people into being part of a movement that comes to share a fictional reality, a reality that makes them feel valued and worthwhile. And so much of what she's talking about in this chapter is the way that totalitarian movements who need to appeal to the masses, they may use ideologies, they may use you know, uh, different views, political views, but what really they're successful at is organizing people into, into a movement that protects itself from alternative viewpoints, that creates, insulates itself from reality and creates a kind of coherent fictional world. And you see that all around us, right? I mean, when people are talking about fake news or as one of the questioners today brought up, you know, the one of the lawyers for Trump, Sidney Powell, you know, said, well, no one actually could have believed what I was saying about January 6th. Well, uh, on the same hand, when Rachel Maddow was challenged about some of the stuff on her, she said, well, no one actually believes we're a news show, right? We know that we're entertainment. We're appealing to this. And and so there's, there's this, you create these closed off worldviews on both the left and the right. Part of the organization though, is having a leader. And, and I think what's different from the left and the right is that the right, the right movement today is, is led by a leader, whereas the left's leftist movements today are often not. And, and that's a big difference. And it's one of the, the reasons uh, I think there's so much angst in the world today. Thank you, Roger. Thank you, Yana. And here's chapter 11. Enjoy reading Hannah Arendt. Welcome, everybody. My name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director here at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College, and I'm thrilled to be with you today for the virtual reading group. We are slouching to Gomorrah, yeah? Um, we're nearing the end of Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism, and you know we're smack dab in the middle of the third section of the book on totalitarianism. Depending on on where you read and what time you're reading it, some people will say this is the least important section, and some people will say the it's the most important. Samuel Moyne, who's been a, a recent virulent critic of Arendt and a lot of her modern uses, has just written another piece saying, you know, everybody's pointing towards the relevance of Arendt and turning towards chapter part three of the book on totalitarianism. And it's it's the least important part of the book and the most problematic and that we should stop reading it as a, as a window onto the present. I think it's an important corrective and an important view. I've always, I, I, in, in writing and speaking about this section, uh, warned against simply seeing it as a way of, of thinking about the present. First of all, it's not. It's, a, it's written about the Nazi and Bolshevik movements. And secondly, Arendt is always alert too new things and differences and and accounts. And it's important that we not simply try and take what she's written 70 years ago and apply it to the present. That said, and 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 I and I mean that and, and I and I and I'm going to be, I don't think we're in a totalitarian, I certainly don't think we have a totalitarian government. I think there are totalitarian elements of politics. And I think that's what her book is helpful in in thinking through and hoping to understand. This particular chapter, chapter 11 on the totalitarian movements, has always been, to my mind, the most important chapter in the section on totalitarianism 
in thinking about our contemporary predicaments. It is so because it is an attempt to understand the totalitarian movement as opposed to totalitarianism in power, which will be chapter 12. That's not a that's not an advertisement to skip chapter 12 because it's less relevant. Uh, chapter 12 is important in understanding totalitarianism. But this chapter on the totalitarian movement is absolutely essential in trying to understand how totalitarian movements operate before they come to power. As she says at the very beginning, how they operate under conditions of constitutional government and freedom of opinion, right? We have in the United States and in much of the world, constitutional governments that boast freedom of opinion to greater and lesser degrees. And in such governments and in such situations, totalitarian movements, when they struggle for power, are like other parties. They're not that different. That's because, as we'll read in chapter 12, the essence of totalitarianism is terror. And before they have power, totalitarian movements are limited in the amount of terror and the extent of terror they can use. They need to win adherence just like any other political party. They need to appear plausible in public and not yet rigorously isolated from all other sources of information. And so to the extent totalitarianism may be a problem today, which I leave really as an open question because I don't have an answer to it. I'm not sure you can tell yet. It's not going to be able to make use of the essential aspects of totalitarianism, namely terror, in order to take power. And so this is the chapter where Arendt, more than anywhere else, sort of isolates how insurgent totalitarian movements go about trying to take power and then become totalitarian governments. Like I said, I, I don't think we're there. I'm not sure we'll ever get there again. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. But if you want to understand the dangers and the techniques that totalitarian movements use, this is Arendt's attempt to analyze that. She separates in the beginning. And so the chapter is actually broken into two parts. The first part on propaganda, totalitarian propaganda, and the second part on totalitarian organization. The key insight, and I think still underappreciated. I mean, the amount these chapters, this chapter has been read and talked about ad infinitum, it seems. But while so many people focus on the section on propaganda, you get much less interest in the section on totalitarian organization. And her argument is that the core of propaganda is organization. Her argument is that the way totalitarian movements seek to appeal to the masses and to win adherence and thus to become powerful is not through the content of their propaganda. It's not through the claim that Aryans are a chosen race and Jews are a subhuman race. It's not through the claim that the bourgeoisie is corrupt and the proletariat will inherit the earth. She says, you know, the ideology is important, but it's not original and the content is not what matters. In the end, what's going to matter more than anything else is the organization. 
is the fact that the totalitarian movements organizes homeless, lonely, atomized people and gives them a sense of purpose and gives them a sense of meaning and insulates them from the real world of facts, insulates them from plurality and makes them believe that they've created a coherent fictional reality in which they are meaningful and important and have a purpose. And that organization is what the people crave. They don't actually care about the racism. They don't really care about the classism of socialism. Classism and racism are simply ideological crutches that are used by totalitarian movements to give the people what they really want, which is belonging to a unity, belonging to a mass movement, belonging to something that gives them a sense of purpose. In the beginning of this chapter on totalitarian propaganda, Arendt distinguishes terror from propaganda. She says that um, when totalitarianism is in full control, when it's in power, it will replace propaganda with terror. She said the terror is the essence of totalitarian government, which she's going to talk a lot about in chapter 12 and also in the epilogue on ideology, ideology and terror. That terror, unlike propaganda, seeks full indoctrination and it uses violence not to frighten people, but to realize and fully create a fictional, coherent, ideological world. This terror is only fully perfected or closely to fully, fully perfected in something like a concentration camp, not even in uh, Nazi Germany or Bolshevist Russia. There's always going to be exceptions to it and, and, and weaknesses in it. But she'll explore that more in chapter 12. This chapter, she says, is on propaganda. And we really need to understand what she means by totalitarian propaganda. And it's going to, as I said, spoiler alert, right? I've already given it. It's going to end in saying that the core of propaganda is actually organization. But the first thing to realize about propaganda is that it's aimed not at the mob, but at masses. Now, we talked last week about the masses versus the classes. And the key thing to remember is that while classes of people share common interests, masses are people who are from all the different classes who feel in a sense, adrift or left out of the class they're in and drop out of it and become a kind of atomized mass. And as a result, the masses don't have interests, or if they do, their interests are not what drive them, as do classes. The masses, she says, are attracted to the unpredictable and absolute. Thus, they're anti-utilitarian in their interests, and they're willing to sacrifice comfort and security for meaning. I mean, that's the key aspect of the masses. They care so much about finding something purposeful or meaning that they're even willing to sacrifice their individual interests to have that meaning. And this aspect of the masses means that what they really want is an absolute guarantee. They want to know in a world of, of insecurity and conflict and, and plurality, they want to know the truth. They want to know something foundational. And this is the connection between science and propaganda in totalitarian movements. In totalitarianism, the reason behind the propaganda, the propaganda doesn't appeal to rational interest. It's the claim that there's an absolute sense of meaning in the world. And thus interest, 
is a collective fo- as a collective force can only be felt, she says, when there are stable social bodies. The masses, however, don't belong to any social or political body. And so she says on page 348, the fanaticism of members of totalitarian movements is produced by the lack of self-interest of masses who are quite prepared to sacrifice themselves. I mean, this is one of the really important and fascinating aspects of totalitarian movements is that many of the people who are the most gung-ho supporters of totalitarian movements, you look at them and say, why are they doing this? It's not in their interests. It's not pursuing their interests. And what she's saying is their interest is not a rational social interest. It's not a economic interest. It's not a political interest, but it does have an interest, but the interest is in being part of a movement. And so she'll continue on 348 and say, totalitarian movements use socialism and racism by emptying them of their utilitarian content, the interests of class or nation. Again, it's not the content of racism or the content of socialism that totalitarian movements depend on. It's they're just, they are the ideology that the movement is able to choose because it works. And what the people in the masses care about more than the content is the certainty and the comfort that comes with a coherent fiction, an ideology that claims to explain the whole world. So they care more for the form of scientific prophecy and absolute certainty than for the content. And so totalitarianism is about or works by making predictions and then making the predictions come true. That only can really happen once totalitarianism is in power, because when it's in power, you can predict things. You can say, I'm going to make the Moscow subway the best in the world, and then you can actually do it. Or you can say, uh, we're going to eliminate unemployment, and you can eliminate unemployment benefits and say there is no unemployment, and anyone who's unemployed and can't eat will die, and it goes away. And so in power, you can actually bring yourself, your predictions to truth. But before you get power, when you're part of a totalitarian movement, the totalitarian leader has to somehow convince people of their unending infallibility. This is on page 349. They can never admit an error. So on 349, she says, the mass leaders in power have one concern to make their predictions come true. And before they're in power, they just have to never admit an error and somehow make it seem as if their predictions are always about to come true. She continues, the propaganda effect of infallibility, the striking success of posing as a mere interpreting agent of predictable forces, has encouraged in totalitarian dictators the habit of announcing their political intentions in the form of prophecy. On 350, she writes, the language of prophetic scientificality corresponded to the needs of the masses who had lost their home in the world and now were prepared to be reintegrated into the eternal all dominating forces, which by themselves would bear man, the swimmer on the ways of adversity to the shores of safety. So just to understand the basic argument here, totalitarianism, before it comes into power, has to appeal to the masses. The masses are homeless, purposeless. They feel a need for meaning. They desire to escape a reality that is uncomfortable, complicated, dark. And so there's a, quote, longing of the masses for a completely consistent, comprehensible, and predictable world. And this is now the key 
I think, the key move, right? On page 350 to 351, bottom of 350 to top of 351, she says, for the masses, in contrast to classes, want victory and success as such in their most abstract form. They care about victory. They don't care about the bourgeoisie or the working class. They don't care about the Aryans or the Jews. What they care about is winning. Why? Because when you win, you're part of something and you get meaning and purpose. So she continues, more important than the cause that may be victorious or the particular enterprise that may be a success is the victory no matter what cause and success no matter what enterprise. On 351 to 352, she says, what convinces the masses are not facts and not even invented facts, but only the consistency of the system of which they are presumably a part. It's consistency, it's victory, it's success that brings people together from their loneliness and their purposelessness and makes them feel like they're winning. I mean, we're winning, right? That's the, that's the claim of the proto-totalitarian leader who's not yet totalitarian, but wants to be. They are predisposed, she says, to all ideologies because they explain facts as mere examples of laws and eliminate coincidences by inventing an all-embracing omnipotence, which is supposed to be at the root of every accident. She says that totalitarian propaganda thrives on this escape from reality into fiction, from coincidence into consistency. And on 352, she says, the masses escape from reality is a verdict against the world in which they are forced to live and which they cannot exist since coincidence has become its supreme master and human beings need the constant transformation of chaotic and accidental conditions into a man-made pattern of relative consistency. The world is complicated. It's, it doesn't make sense. It is unpredictable. It's hard to control. And when you are not in a class, when you've exited a class and you're not, your interests are not doing it for you and you are feeling adrift, consistency, coherence, success, victory, winning, that's what gives you a sense of purpose. And she says, before they seize power and establish a world according to their doctrines, this is on 353, before they get there, before they have power, totalitarian movements conjure up a lying world of consistency. One of my, I don't know, it's one of my favorite phrases. If you read my book, Perils of Invention, you'll, you'll see that this is a big part of what I'm interested in. But they conjure up a lying world of consistency, which is more adequate to the needs of the human mind and reality itself. For many of us, for those of us who are outside of stable worlds and stable political bodies, a world of lying, a lying world of consistency is more adequate to the needs of the human mind than to reality itself. And thus, the lying world of consistency, she says, is achieved by victory, by being a part of a movement. And the masses accept this not because they're stupid or wicked, she says on 352. But because in the general disaster of the inconsistency and incoherence of this world, this escape from reality grants them a minimum of self-respect. And, and that's, that's the sort of insight of the totalitarian movement, that people will prefer self-respect that's based in a lying world of consistency over facts and truth 
and incoherence. The last part of this section is about how anti-Semitism for the Nazis and anti-bourgeois sentiment for the Bolsheviks became part of the self-definition of Nazism and Bolshevism. And the point is that Nazi propaganda, to use the one, one example, was ingenious enough to transform anti-Semitism into a principle of self-definition. As Nazis, we are anti-Semites. And thus to eliminate from anti-Semitism, you know, fluctuations of mere opinion. It's not an option. It's That's who we are. We're anti-Semites. And it uses this persuasion, she says, to give these atomized, undefinable, unstable, feudal masses a means of self-identification and definition. Why does it do that? And here's the transition in the chapter. Because in doing that, it makes them better candidates for organization, right? On 350, that's on 356. And at the bottom of 356 on 357, she says that what propaganda really does is it allows the movement to, quote, set itself up as the artificial extension of the mass meeting. You know, the big meeting where people get together and scream and yell together. And it rationalized the essentially futile feelings of self-importance and historical hysterical security that the mass meeting offers to isolated individuals and atomized society. What you're trying to do is take these people who are alone and give them that feeling of being part of a unity, part of a mass. And the reason you do that is that the true goal of totalitarian propaganda is not persuasion, but organization. That's on 360. The true goal of totalitarian propaganda is not persuasion, but organization. Well, I'll say it slightly differently. Organization becomes a means of persuasion. You persuade people by organizing them into a unity or a mass unity that makes them feel like they're winning and therefore important, and that persuades them to be part of the movement. The accumulation of power, she continues, without the possession of the means of violence is done through this organization. And you don't need original ideological content. What you need is what she calls, quote, on 361, the power of a living organization. It's this power of being organized that is what contributes to the persuasiveness of totalitarian movements. The second part of the chapter is on totalitarian organization. How does it happen? And she says that the while the content, racism, classism, is not new, right? The ideologies are not really new. What's new is the forms of organization that totalitarian movements employ. And they're designed, she says, to build a society whose members act and react according to the rules of a fictional world. You know, she doesn't make these 100% clear in this section, but I think I can, you can identify four forms of totalitarian organization that she discusses. The first and by far the most important is the front organization of sympathizers. The second is the principle of duplication. The third is the leader principle. And the fourth are what she'll call elite formations of the movement, which are separated from ordinary members. So those are the four forms of organization that organize an amorphous mass of itemized and isolated and lonely people into a unity that can win and have success and therefore persuades people to become part of the movement. 
Thus, it's not that propaganda and terror are two sides of the same coin. They're not, because terror is when totalitarianism is in power. But organization and propaganda, she says on 364, are two sides of the same coin. Organization is the most important aspect of propaganda. So of these four types, these four forms of organization, the most important, I said before, is the front organization. She calls it a protective wall that organizes fellow travelers into front organizations. Basically, what you do is you have the true believers around the leader in the middle, but you create front organizations, sympathizers, people who are sympathetic to the totalitarian movement, but not full believers in it. But because they're sympathetic enough to it, they largely accept much of what they say. And they, in a sense, form a buffer or a wall that protects the members from the facts and opinions that are part of the real world outside of the totalitarian organization. So that the members, the true members, are never actually confronted with the outside world on 367. The true members thus live in a fully fictional and closely corned off world of the party, Bolshevik party, the Nazi party. The structure of totalitarian organization, therefore, is ever narrowing circles of unreality, each protected by the real world, by the one further out. So the idea is you create all these different levels of organizations, front organizations, such that the truest believers are protected by the true believers who are protected by the maybe believers who are protected by the fellow travelers. And the result on 367, she writes, is that the fellow travelers organizations surround the totalitarian movements with a mist of normality and respectability that fools the membership about the character of the outside world as much as it does the outside world about the true character of the movement. Both sides are fooled, right? Because they're confronted by these buffer of front organizations. The front organization functions both ways as the facade of the totalitarian movement to the non-totalitarian world and as the facade of this world to the inner hierarchy of the movement. But the key on 367, she writes, the key is to prevent members of the movement from ever being directly confronted with the outside world. It's to make these members so completely insulated from reality of the non-totalitarian world that they constantly underestimate their own power and the, the risks of totalitarian politics. They don't see how dangerous it can be. The second form of organization, totalitarian organization that she talks about is duplication. The point is that these front organization patterns are repeated on many different levels so that as you get increasingly inside the party, there's increasing complete disassociation from the real world. And so she talks about how with the Nazi party, first you had the party. Then in 1922, the party formed the SA, which was a more militant organization than the party itself. In 1926, they created the SS, which was the elite formation of the SA. In 1929, the SS was separated from the SA under Himmler. Then when that wasn't radical enough, they created the Waffen-SS as an even more elite formation. And when that wasn't enough, they created something called the Verfugungstruppe, which I don't quite know what it's called in English, but is another level of SS hierarchy. The point is you have so many hierarchies, so many duplicate organizations, and that this same strategy, she says, was used 
in professional organizations. So you would have a teachers union, but then you'd have teachers union of the Nazi party. And then you'd have the teachers union of the Nazi party who are sort of the more, you know, intense uh, members, the leadership. And then you could even create fake departments of government, a fake state department, a fake department of immigration. And all of this, she says, works to undermine the status quo. It's all designed to separate party members from reality and to make them so that they could not get used to and take root in the ordinary world. On 369, she says that what we create here is a fluctuating hierarchy with its constant addition of new layers and shifts in authority. On 371, she'll add the technique of duplication, certainly useless for the direct overthrow of government, proved extremely fruitful in the work of undermining actively existing institutions and in the decomposition of the status quo, which totalitarian organizations invariably invariably prefer to an open show of force. You don't try and openly force and overthrow the government. You undermine the status quo. You create buffer zones. So you create a whole elite that's isolated from the real world. And that's how you begin to undermine the status quo. The third form, organizational form, she talks about is the leader principle. The leader, she says, is in the center of the movement as the motor that swings it into motion sits the leader. This is on 373. The leader is separated from the elite formation by an inner circle of the initiated who spread around him an aura of impenetrable mystery, which corresponds to his intangible preponderance. What the leader principle really means for her is that what the leader is good at and what Stalin and Hitler both could do was not that they controlled the institutions of power. They didn't at the beginning. Trotsky controlled the army, right? Not Stalin. Trotsky was even more charismatic than Stalin. But what they did is they demanded loyalty and by making everyone depend on them for their career and safety and by constantly changing personnel, they came to be seen as winners and people who could command absolute loyalty. And so on 374, she says, the supreme task of the leader is to impersonate the double function characteristic of each layer of the movement to act as the magic defense of the movement against the outside world. And at the same time, to be the direct bridge by which the movement is connected to that world. The leader also, and this is, I think, very important, takes full responsibility for all his subordinates. You know, if a if a low level person kills someone, the leader says they were right to do so. And I take responsibility. They don't leave their people out in the lurch. They they defend them and they thus, you know, create a sense of of unity and, and loyalty. All of this means that these totalitarian organizations, these totalitarian movements are like secret societies in broad daylight. They're like secret societies, but they don't have a secret because they advertise their secret. But people don't believe them because of these front organization, which buffers reality from the organization and the organization from reality. She says that the, on 382, she says the chief value of the secret or conspiracy society's organizational structure and moral standards for purposes of mass organization is in their unsurpassed capacity to establish and safeguard the fictitious world through consistent lying. Because they protect their people from the real world, they safeguard the fictitious world through consistent lying. And that's that's how they, they work. The last form of totalitarian organization that she talks about are what she calls these elite formations, the ever more elite formations. And 
what these elite formations do is they're actually the people who don't believe the lies, right? They don't, they don't have to believe anti-Semitism. They don't have to believe that all bourgeois are corrupt. That's not their job. Their job is to organize. And so she writes on 384 to 385, the elite formations are distinguished from the ordinary party membership in that they do not need such demonstrations of truth of ideology and are not even supposed to believe in the literal truth of the ideological cliches. These are fabricated to answer a quest for truth among the masses, which in its insistence on explanation and demonstration still has much in common with the normal world. The elite is not composed of ideologists, right? They're not people who are ideological, the elite. Its members' whole education is aimed at abolishing their capacity for distinguishing between truth and falsehood, between reality and fiction. The elite formations are about saying it doesn't matter if it's true or false. What matters is that it works. And she continues, their superiority consists in their ability to immediately dissolve every statement of fact into a declaration of purpose. Point is, when we say a fact, we're not actually saying a fact. We're saying that this fact works in organizing the masses to take power and form a movement. And it's their freedom, these elite people's freedom from the content of their ideologies, which is what makes them valuable to the organization. Thus, first despots or tyrants, the totalitarian leader is free to do whatever he or she pleases. It doesn't, they don't actually have to follow a consistent ideology because their elite formations will immediately turn whatever they say they're doing into an act of purpose that organizes the people. And even if the totalitarian leader would murder some of the members of their party, that can be turned into something that's useful for the organization. And thus they can do whatever they want and they count on loyalty even if they murder their own members as Stalin did. That's the organizational power that is persuasive and leads to propaganda. All right, I look forward to the conversation. James. Okay, Roger. I walked into the hardware store this morning. There's always a hardware store. And the guys behind the counter said, oh, my God, James, that haircut you got. Oh, yeah. Did you get a new job? Did you get a job? And I said, no, I want to be the Fuhrer. I need to change my role. This chapter, I read it three or four times. I just need the instruction manual. You identified it so clearly and so specifically. Did these guys, did Hitler uh, have write an instruction manual uh, where he lays all this out? Is this all laid out in a management course or in instruction manual? I, I, they did mention the, uh, the falsified document that was the core of the anti-Semitic writings. But yeah. The is there of the elder of Zion, yeah. The elders of Zion. Is the, how did they train themselves to be able to do this so efficiently? Uh, you know, that's a good question, James. I mean, there are, I don't think there's one manual. Uh, if you, you know, if you look at the footnotes to this section. Which I read over and over. Yep. Which are fascinating. I mean, she's reading Nazi literature, right? 
I mean, she's reading a really good Nazi literature I could use. Yeah. She's reading Mein Kampf. Mein Kampf. Right. She's reading, you know, um, Himmler. And she's reading people who've studied and written about Himmler, some of whom are Nazis. She's yeah. trying to understand the way they thought and the way they worked, right? And she's reading, you know, Stalin and, and similar things. She doesn't have as many sources on Stalin as she does on Hitler. She also doesn't yeah. speak Russian. So it's a little harder. I love but, the discussion about how how you name the organization something that doesn't quite make sense, simple, Nazi, right? N-A-Z-I, simple. MAGA, yeah. let's go for it. Yeah, okay. I, yeah. got, I just need a I just need another I need a little slogan for my my group. But it's an interesting question and it's one that I think comes up a lot in these conversations, right? Let's say you think there is a totalitarian movement in, in a polity and it's having some impact, and you're told by Arendt that the premise of it is that the people in it are isolated from reality, thus factual arguments are not gonna work trying to argue and persuade them through rational facts and argumentation is not going to work. How do you respond, right? Do you try and somehow break in one level at a time into the front organizations, the fellow travelers, and bring them back to reality, right? Or do you do what James saying, how do I create my own totalitarian movement on the other side, right? James is like, I want to be the Fuhrer on the other side, right? And, and there are a lot of people who have over time argued that, you know, the only response to this is a different movement. You know, I, I think that's a dangerous game to play, but I understand the, the seduction of it. But it does raise the question of, A, how do you do this and how do people do it? Well, the first thing is you have to have First of all, you have to have masses, right? You have to have, you have to be at a moment in which enormous numbers of people are suddenly expurgated from the stable classes, institutions, and organizations of society that have given them interest. And then you have to appeal to them as you would in a mass meeting. You have to provide them victories feeling a sense of purpose and, 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 and meaning. And that means you have to, you know, uh, be a kind of, you have to be willing to be a kind of demagogue and you have to be willing to create these organizations that actively create a fictitious, coherent world. If you just say, well, they're doing it, we should do it too. You know, I, I don't think I, I, at that point, you know, one side wins or the other side wins, or what really loses is any kind of, reality of plurality and common world. And so I'm a little hesitant of give me a, a manual for the to become Fuhrer. I understand the inclination. I'm not saying you're saying that hundred percent, but I, you're not the only one. Many people have said fight fire with fire here. And I think that a lot of the reaction, you know, with the idea of the resistance um, six years ago uh, was that let's, let's fire, fight fire with fire. And I don't think it worked. I think it backfired. It backfires because what you do is you even further weaken reality. And the only way to resist the attack on reality, the 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 complete fictionalization of a world and people protected from it, is to constantly strengthen reality, to strengthen plurality, not to 
create another fictional reality on the other side, that just pushes everybody apart or pulls everybody apart. Thank you. Yep. Greg. Yeah, hi. You can hear me okay? I do. I just need some, just some more, a little bit of clarification, not following all the steps of the chapter. And the core of the chapter you said was this connection between propaganda and organization. And so could you just explain that maybe one more time so I make sure I've got that? And I was yes. also wondering, what has happened to the mob in this story? We don't hear too much of them in this chapter. So on the first question about propaganda and organization, what is propaganda? Pro propaganda is a way of uh, appealing to the masses and trying to bring them into your movement. And it can be through ideologies, right? And the Nazis used a number of ideologies, but race was one of them, or anti-Semitism, right? The Bolsheviks used classism, right? Pro the bourgeoisie or are corrupt and evil people and we need to kill them or take away their property. And, and what, what RN says is propaganda is, is a way to appeal to these folks. It's not based on interest because these are people who feel so adrift that they're actually don't care. Their primary goal is not healthcare, right? Their primary goal is feeling powerful and meaningful in the world. And so she says, you have to somehow appeal to them. And, you know, while racism can sometimes be appealing and classism can sometimes be appealing and nationalism can sometimes be appealing. And, you know, there are other ideologies as well, right? Anti-colonialism is now an ideology that is appealing to some people or wokeism, you know, if you're, if you're on, you know, in, in, in certain worlds. But what she says is in the end, the content of these ideologies is not what really drives people forward to become adherents of a totalitarian movement. What really gets them and convinces them to be part of it is a feeling of purpose, winning, power, and that that comes not through the ideology, not through the content, but through the being part of a movement. And that's what organization is. And so organization is actually part of persuasion. It's not separate from it. What really persuades people to be part of a totalitarian movement is the feeling of being organized. Does that make sense to you, Greg? Uh, yeah, no, it very much does. Uh, but I guess the propaganda and the ideology, however, you know, however flexible they are, it still provides a language to hold people together. Right? Absolutely. The language could be any language as long as people are held together. And and let me say the the conclusion of this book right is called ideology and terror and she's there's no doubt that ideology is an essential part of totalitarianism. I mean this is the thing Jerry and I were talking about last week, you know. And yes, to some degree, organization and terror overcome ideology and overtake it in its importance. But I don't think it's I don't you still need the fiction. What is the organization and the terror doing? It's solidifying a consistent, coherent, fictional world. And that has to be based on an ideology. And yeah. so, yes, I think they go together. That's why they're two sides of the same coin, is what yeah. she's arguing. Okay. Your, your other question about the mob is, is an excellent question. 
The mob only appears, as far as I know, in the first sentence of the chapter. <laughs> she says in the first sentence, only the mob and the elite can be attracted by the momentum of totalitarianism itself. The masses have to be won by propaganda. What she actually means by there, I have to tell you, is you know not something I can say I 100% understand. Uh, but here's my attempt to, to make sense of it. The mob and the elite, the elite, can sometimes be attracted to ideology. The mob is attracted by power and by victory, and thus by the momentum of totalitarianism. But the masses don't want just, they don't want power in the sense of control, right? Like the mob does. The mob actually wants to be in control. The masses want power in the sense of a feeling of togetherness, of purpose, of common, of winning in the sense of, we're, we're, we're meaningful. And so unlike the mob, which, you know, will actually try and take power, unlike the elite, which often have ideological commitments, the masses have to be won over by propaganda and organization, by making them feel like they are part of a, co a coherent fictional world and that they are a part of a coherent fictional world that's strong, powerful, winning, successful. They don't actually expect to get much benefit from it. The mob expects a benefit from it. That's, I think, the difference, if I get it right in her work. Okay, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Jerry, always good to see you. I want to start out by saying that you gave a much better demonstration than I could of what I was trying to say in the last session about the relative unimportance of ideology in the organization. As you yourself said, the elites in the organization simply couldn't care less about an ideology. But if you look a little bit further, Adolf Eichmann was not very far from being one of the elite of the of the uh, movement, the Nazi movement. He also wasn't an anti-Semite, Semite, according to Aaron's analysis. This, I think, is where I know this book is not about Eichmann, so I'll leave it there. But I, I want to thank you for that, as you said precisely what I was trying to say. I thought I could give a little bit of an anecdote here. And that is, I was once talking to Arendt about this very chapter. And I said, said to her, she liked this image very much of an onion. And you mentioned it, uh, well, the outside and the inside, as you analyze totalitarianism, it's like peeling an onion. And I said to her, I said to her, yeah, and the deeper you get, the more you cry. And she, and, and she said, yes, Jerry, but remember, you're only, that applies only to the peeler only to the person who's doing the peeling. I just wanted to throw that in. That's priceless, Jerry. Thank you for that. Um, I thought that was, yeah, I mean, I didn't actually talk about the onion as much as I should have. I realized I, I left it out. But Jerry's talking about the image she offers of the onion as 
these front organizations and elite organizations that, you know, like the onion have more and more and the, the leader is in the middle and the plurality of societies on the outside and each level of the onion looks both inward to keep people isolated and outward to make people think, oh, it's not as bad as you seem. And that's an important aspect. So I'm glad you brought that up. And I love that anecdote, Jerry. So thank you. And I think, yeah, I think we agree on, I think we agree primarily then on terror and ideology and their relation. So I'm glad that made sense now. Listen, thank you all. This has been a great conversation. I hope you enjoy reading Hannah Arendt. We meet next next week on the second to read Totalitarianism and Power. I will say that that's one of the most, it's really, I mean, it's harrowing. So I don't usually give trigger warnings, but there you go. (laughs) It's a a pretty awful, I mean, it's a pretty intense read. I hope you read it with care and compassion in your hearts because it is, it's about totalitarianism and power. And the ultimate example of totalitarianism for her is, is the concentration camp. So you're going to get a a pretty vivid account of that. So enjoy reading Hannah Arendt and I will see you all in a week. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast and leave us a like in case you enjoyed this week's chapter reading. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz and we hope you'll be back next time. If you'd like to participate in discussions, please become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and join our weekly reading groups. We'd love to see you every Friday. For more info, visit our website at hac.bard.edu and follow us on Twitter at Arendt Center or Instagram at Hannah Arendt Center at Bard. My name is Jana Mada and I look forward to welcoming you back next week for another episode of Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. Goodbye and auf Wiedersehen.